This week's episode is sponsored by Jagged Edge Productions and ITN Studios' Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey 2. Only in theaters, March 26th to March 28th. The suspenseful and thrilling sequel to last year's immense hit, Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, amplifies the gore factor with ten times the number of kills to put fans both new and old at the edge of their seats. After Christopher Robin reveals their existence, Winnie the Pooh, Piglet, Tigger, and Owl land on the endangered species list as hard targets. Unwilling to hide in the shadows, the ultimate scream team embarks on a murderous rampage through the town of Ashdown to get their revenge on Christopher Robin, once and for all. So don't miss out, and mark your calendars to catch the limited engagement of Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey 2, only in theaters March 26th to March 28th. Tickets are available now. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the Icon of Vacations. Icon of the Seas, arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry Bahamas. Welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby, and I'll be reading you a bedtime story. This week, I'm dusting off another classic. It's always good to have these under your belt as a horror fan. For one, it's just excellent literature, and it's fascinating to see the older days of the genre and the tropes that we even still use today. And it's also fun to be able to casually mention these in conversation to show off how well-read you are to your friends. (laughs) Tonight's story is by M.R. James. I've already read one of his most popular stories on the show. It was called Oh Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad. And that is episode 46, if you'd like to check that out. However, this story I have for you this evening is one I personally like better. I'll explain more why at the end of the episode. I don't want to give any spoilers. But this is Count Magnus. By what means the papers out of which I have made a connected story came into my hands is the last point which the reader will learn from these pages. But it is necessary to prefix my extracts from them, a statement of the form in which I possess them. 
They consist, then partly, of a series of collection for a book of travels, such a volume as was a common product of the 40s and 50s. Horace Marriott's Journal of Residence in Jutland and the Danish Isles is a fair specimen of the class to which I allude. These books usually treated of some unfamiliar district of the continent. They were illustrated with woodcuts or steel plates. They gave details of hotel accommodation and means of communication, such as we now expect to find in any well-regulated guidebook. And they dealt largely in reported conversations with intelligent foreigners, racy innkeepers, and garrulous peasants. In a word, they were chatty. Begun with the idea of furnishing material for such a book, my papers, as they progressed, assumed the character of a record of one single personal experience, and this record was continued up to the very eve, almost, of its termination. The writer was a Mr. Raxel. For my knowledge of him, I have to depend entirely on the evidence his writings afford, and from these I deduce that he was a man past middle age, possessed of some private means, and very much alone in the world. He had, it seems, no settled abode in England, but was a denizen of hotels and boarding houses. It is probable that he entertained the idea of settling down at some future time, which never came. And I think it also likely that the Pantechnicon fire in the early 70s must have destroyed a great deal that would have thrown light on his antecedents, for he refers once or twice to property of his that was warehoused at that establishment. It is further apparent that Mr. Raxel had published a book, and that it treated of a holiday he had once taken in Brittany. More than this, I cannot say about his work, because a diligent search in bibliographical works has convinced me that it must have appeared either anonymously or under a pseudonym. As to his character, it is not difficult to form some superficial opinion. He must have been an intelligent and cultivated man. It seems that he was near being a fellow of his college at Oxford Brasenose, as I judge from the calendar. His besetting fault was pretty clearly that of over-inquisitiveness. Possibly a good fault in a traveler, certainly a fault for which this traveler paid dearly enough at the end. On what proved to be his last expedition, he was plotting another book. Scandinavia, a region not widely known to Englishmen forty years ago, had struck him as an interesting field. He must have lighted on some old books of Swedish history or memoirs, and the idea had struck him that there was room for a book descriptive of travel to Sweden, interspersed with episodes from the history of the great Swedish families. He procured letters of introduction, therefore, to some persons of quality in Sweden, and set out thither in the early summer of 1863. Of his travels in the north, there is no need to speak nor of his residence of some weeks in Stockholm. I need only mention that some savant resident there put him on the track of an important collection of family papers, 
belonging to the proprietors of an ancient manor house in Vestergothland, and obtained for him permission to examine them. The manor house, or Ergard, in question is to be called Robeck, though that is not its name. It is one of the best buildings of its kind in all the country, and the picture of it in Dahlenberg's Suecia Antica et Moderna, engraved in 1694, shows it very much as the tourist may see it today. It was built soon after 1600, and is, roughly speaking, very much like an English house of that period in respect of material, red brick with stone facings, and style. The man who built it was a scion of the great house of De La Gardi, and his descendants possess it still. De La Gardi is the name by which I will designate them when mention of them becomes necessary. They received Mr. Raxall with great kindness and courtesy, and pressed him to stay in the house as long as his researches lasted. But, preferring to be independent and mistrusting his powers of conversing in Swedish, he settled himself at the village inn, which turned out quite sufficiently comfortable, at any rate during the summer months. The arrangement would entail a short walk daily to and from the manor house, of something under a mile. The house itself stood in a park and was protected, we should say grown up, with large old timber. Near it you found the walled garden, and then entered a close wood, fringing one of the small lakes with which the whole country is pitted. Then came the wall of the domain, and you climbed a steep knoll, a knob of rock lightly covered with soil, and on top of this stood the church, fenced in with tall, dark trees. It was a curious building to English eyes. The nave and aisles were low, and filled with pews and galleries. In the western gallery stood the handsome old organ, gaily painted with silver pipes. The ceiling was flat, and had been adorned by a 17th century artist with a strange and hideous last judgment, full of lurid flames, falling cities, burning ships, crying souls, and brown and smiling demons. Handsome brass coronet hung from the roof. The pulpit was like a doll's house, covered with little painted wooden cherubs and saints. A stand with three hourglasses was hinged to the preacher's desk. Such sights as these may have been seen in many a church in Sweden now, but what distinguished this one was an addition to the original building. At the eastern end of the north aisle, the builder of the manor house had erected a mausoleum for himself and his family. It was a largish, eight-sided building, lighted by a series of oval windows, and it had a domed roof, topped by a kind of pumpkin-shaped object rising into a spire, a form in which Swedish architects greatly delighted. The roof was of copper externally, and was painted black, while the walls, in common with those of the church, were staringly white. 
To the mausoleum, there was no access from the church. It had a portal and steps of its own on the northern side. Past the churchyard, the path to the village goes, and not more than three or four minutes bring you to the inn door. On the first day of his stay at Robeck, Mr. Raxel found the church door open and made these notes of the interior which I have epitomized. Into the mausoleum, however, he could not make his way. He could, by looking through the keyhole, just descry that there were fine marble effigies and sarcophagi of copper and a wealth of armorial ornament, which made him very anxious to spend some time in investigation. The papers he had come to examine at the manor house proved to be of just the kind he wanted for his book. There were family correspondence, journals, and account books of the earliest owners of the estate, very carefully kept and clearly written, full of amusing and picturesque detail. The first de la Gardie appeared in them as a strong and capable man. Shortly after the building of the mansion, there had been a period of distress in the district, and the peasants had risen and attacked several chateaux and done some damage. The owner of Robeck took a leading part in suppressing the trouble, and there was reference to executions of ringleaders and severe punishments inflicted with no sparing hand. The portrait of this Magnus de la Gardie was one of the best in the house, and Mr. Raxel studied it with no little interest after his day's work. He gives no detailed description of it, but I gather that the face impressed him rather by its power than by its beauty or goodness. In fact, he writes that Count Magnus was an almost phenomenally ugly man. On this day, Mr. Raxel took his supper with the family and walked back in the late but still bright evening. I remember this, he writes, to ask the sexton if he can let me into the mausoleum at the church. He evidently has access to it himself, for I saw him tonight standing on the steps and, as I thought, locking or unlocking the door. I find that, early on the following day, Mr. Raxel had some conversation with this landlord. His setting it down at such length as he does surprised me at first, but I soon realized that the papers I was reading were, at least in their beginning, the materials of the book he was meditating, and that it was to have been one of those quasi-journalistic productions which admit of the introduction of an admixture of conversational matter. His object, he says, was to find out whether any traditions of Count Magnus de la Gardie lingered on in the scenes of that gentleman's activity, and whether the popular estimate of him was favorable or not. He found that the Count was decidedly not a favorite. If his tenants came late to their work on the days which they owed to him as lord of the manor, they were set on the wooden horse or flogged and branded in the manor house yard. One or two cases there were of men who had occupied lands which encroached on the lord's domain and whose houses had mysteriously burnt on a winter's night with the whole family inside. 
but what seemed to dwell on the innkeeper's mind most, for he returned to the subject more than once, was that the Count had been on the Black Pilgrimage, and had brought something, or someone, back with him. You will naturally inquire, as Mr. Raxel did, what the Black Pilgrimage may have been. But your curiosity on the point must remain unsatisfied for the time being, just as his did. The landlord was evidently unwilling to give a full answer, or indeed any answer on the point, and, being called out for a moment, trotted off with obvious alacrity, only putting his head in at the door a few minutes afterwards to say that he was called away to Skara, and should not be back till evening. So, Mr. Raxel had to go unsatisfied to his day's work at the manor house. The papers on which he was just then engaged soon put his thoughts into another channel, for he had to occupy himself with glancing over the correspondence between Sophia Albertina in Stockholm and her married cousin Ulrika Leonora at Robeck in the years 1705-10. to 10. The letters were of exceptional interest from the light they threw upon the culture of that period in Sweden, as anyone can testify who has read the full edition of them in the publications of the Swedish Historical Manuscripts Commission. In the afternoon, he had done with these, and after returning the boxes in which they were kept to their places on the shelf, he proceeded, very naturally, to take down some of the volumes nearest to them in order to determine which of them had best be his principal subject of the investigation next day. The shelf he had hit upon was occupied mostly by a collection of account books in the writing of the first Count Magnus. But one among them was not an account book, but a book of alchemical and other tracts in another 16th century hand. Not being very familiar with alchemical literature, Mr. Raxel spends much space which he might have spared in setting out the names and beginnings of various treatises. The Book of the Phoenix, Book of the Thirty Words, Book of the Toad, Book of Miriam, Turba Philosophorum, and so on. And he announces with a good deal of circumstance his delight at finding on a leaf originally left blank near the middle of the book, some writing of Count Magnus himself, headed Liber Nigre Peregrinationis. It is true that only a few lines were written, but there was quite enough to show that the landlord had that morning been referring to a belief at least as old as the time of Count Magnus, and probably shared by him. This is the English of what was written. If any man desires to obtain a long life, if he would obtain a faithful messenger and see the blood of his enemies, it is necessary that he should first go into the city of Shorazin and there salute the prince. Here there was an erasure of one word, though not very thoroughly done, so that Mr. Raxel felt pretty sure that he was right in reading it as heiress of the heir. But there was no more of the text copied, only a line in Latin. 
Quere relica hojus materiae inter secretiora. See the rest of this matter among the more private things. It could not be denied that this threw a rather lurid light upon the tastes and beliefs of the Count, but to Mr. Raxel, separated from him by nearly three centuries, the thought that he might have added to his general forcefulness alchemy, and to alchemy something like magic, only made him a more picturesque figure, and when, after a rather prolonged contemplation of his picture in the hall, Mr. Raxel set out on his homeward way. His mind was full of the thought of Count Magnus. He had no eyes for his surroundings, no perception of the evening scents of the woods, or the evening light on the lake. And when all of a sudden, he pulled up short, he was astonished to find himself already at the gate of the churchyard, and within a few minutes of his dinner, his eyes fell on the mausoleum. Oh, he said, Count Magnus, there you are. I should dearly like to see you. Like many solitary men, he writes, I have a habit of talking to myself aloud, and unlike some of the Greek and Latin particles, I do not expect an answer. Certainly, and perhaps fortunately in this case, there was neither voice nor any that regarded. Only the woman who, I suppose, was cleaning up the church, dropped some metallic object on the floor whose clang startled me. Count Magnus, I think, sleeps sound enough. That same evening, the landlord of the inn, who had heard Mr. Raxel say that he wished to see the clerk, or deacon, as he would be called in Sweden, of the parish, introduced him to that official in the inn parlor. A visit to the De La Gardi tomb house was soon arranged for the next day, and a little general conversation ensued. Mr. Raxel, remembering that one function of Scandinavian deacons is to teach candidates for confirmation, thought he would refresh his own memory on a biblical point. Can you tell me, he said, anything about Shrozin? The deacon seemed startled, but readily reminded him how the village had once been denounced. To be sure said Mr. Raxel. It is, I suppose, quite a ruin now. So I expect, replied the deacon. I have heard some of our old priests say that Antichrist is to be born there, and there are tales. Ah, oh, what tales are those? Mr. Raxel put in. Tales, I was going to say, which I have forgotten, said the deacon. And soon after that, he said good night. The landlord was now alone, and at Mr. Raxel's mercy, and that inquirer was not inclined to spare him. Er, Nielsen, said he, I have found out something about the Black Pilgrimage. You may as well tell me what you know. What did the Count bring back with him? Swedes are habitually slow, perhaps, in answering, or perhaps the landlord was an exception. I am not sure, but Mr. Raxel notes that the landlord spent at least one minute in looking at him before he said anything at all. Then he came up close to his guest, 
and with a good deal of effort, he spoke. Mr. Raxel, I can tell you this one little tale, and no more, not any more. You must not ask anything when I have done. In my grandfather's time, that is, 92 years ago, there were two men who said, The Count is dead. We do not care for him. We will go tonight and have a free hunt in his wood. The long wood on the hill that you have seen behind Roebuck. Well, those that heard him say this, they said, No, do not go. We are sure you will meet with persons walking who should not be walking. They should be resting, not walking. These men laughed. They were no forest men to keep the wood because no one wished to hunt there. The family were not here at the house. These men could do what they wished. Very well, they go to the wood that night. My grandfather was sitting here in this room. It was the summer and a light night. With the window open, he could see out to the wood and hear. So he sat there and two or three men with him and they listened. At first they hear nothing at all. They hear someone. You know how far away it is. They hear someone scream, just as if the most inside part of his soul was twisted out of him. All of them in the room caught hold of each other, and they sat so for three quarters of an hour. Then they hear someone else, only about three hundred L's off. They hear him laugh out loud. It was not one of those two men that laughed, and indeed, they have all said that it was not any man at all. After that, they hear a great door shut. Then, when it was just light with the sun, they all went to the priest. They said to him, Father, put on your gown and your ruff, and come bury these men, Anders Bjornsson and Hans Thorbjorn. You understand that they were sure these men were dead. So they went to the wood. My grandfather never forgot this. He said that they were all like so many dead men themselves. The priest, too. He was in a white fear. He said when they came to him, I heard one cry in the night, and I heard one laugh afterwards. If I cannot forget that, I shall never be able to sleep again. So they went to the wood, and they found these men on the edge of the wood. Hans Thorbjorn was standing with his back against a tree, and all the time he was pushing with his hands, pushing something away from him which was not there. So he was not dead, and they led him away and took him to the house at Nishopin, and he died before the winter. But he went on, pushing with his hands. Also, Anders Bjornsson was there, but he was dead. And I tell you this about Anders Bjornsson, that he was once a beautiful man, but now his face was not there because the flesh of it was sucked away from the bones. You understand that? My grandfather did not forget that. And they laid him on the bier, which they brought. 
and they put a cloth over his head. And the priest walked before, and they began to sing the psalm for the dead as well as they could. So as they were singing the end of the first verse, one fell down, who was carrying the head of the bier, and the others looked back, and they saw that the cloth had fallen off, and the eyes of Anders Bjornsson were looking up, because there was nothing to close over them, and this they could not bear. Therefore, the priest laid the cloth upon him, and sent for a spade, and they buried him in that place. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So, you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall, rock-climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So, whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. The next day... Mr. Raxel records that the deacon called for him soon after his breakfast, and took him to the church and mausoleum. He noticed that the key of the latter was hung on a nail just by the pulpit, and it occurred to him that, as the church door seemed to be left unlocked as a rule, it would not be difficult for him to pay a second and more private visit to the monuments, if there proved to be more of interest among them than could be digested at first. The building, when he entered it, he found not unimposing. The monuments, mostly large erections of the 17th and 18th centuries, were dignified, if luxuriant, and the epitaphs and heraldry were copious. The central space of the domed room was occupied by three copper sarcophagi, covered with finely engraved ornament. Two of them had, as is commonly the case in Denmark and Sweden, a large metal crucifix on the lid. The third, that of Count Magnus, as it appeared, had instead of that a full-length effigy engraved upon it, and round the edge were several bands of similar ornament representing various scenes. One was a battle with cannon belching out smoke, and walled towns and troops of pikemen. Another showed an execution, 
In a third, among trees was a man running at full speed with hair flying and outstretched hands. After him followed a strange form. It would be hard to say whether the artist had intended it for a man, and was unable to give it the requisite similitude, or whether it was intentionally made as monstrous as it looked. In view of the skill with which the rest of the drawing was done, Mr. Raxel felt inclined to adopt the latter idea. The figure was unduly short and was, for the most part, muffled in a hooded garment which swept the ground. The only part of the form which projected from that shelter was not shaped like any hand or arm. Mr. Raxel compares it to the tentacle of a devilfish and continues, On seeing this, I said to myself, this then, which is evidently an allegorical representation of some kind, a fiend pursuing a hunted soul, may be the origin of the story of Count Magnus and his mysterious companion. Let us see how the huntsman is pictured. Doubtless it will be a demon blowing his horn. But, as it turned out, there was no such sensational figure only the semblance of a cloaked man on a hillock, who stood leaning on a stick and watching the hunt with an interest which the engraver had tried to express in his attitude. Mr. Raxel noted the finely worked and massive steel padlocks, three in number, which secured the sarcophagus. One of them, he saw, was detached and lay on the pavement, and then Unwilling to delay the beacon longer, or to waste his own working time, he made his way onward to the manor house. It is curious, he notes, how on retracing a familiar path, one's thoughts engross one to the absolute exclusion of surrounding objects. Tonight, for the second time, I had entirely failed to notice where I was going. I had planned a private visit to the tomb house to copy the epitaphs, when I suddenly, as it were, awoke to consciousness, and found myself, as before, turning in at the churchyard gate, and, I believe, singing or chanting some such words as, Are you awake, Count Magnus? Are you asleep, Count Magnus? And then something more which I have failed to recollect. It seemed to me that I must have been behaving in this nonsensical way for some time. He found the key of the mausoleum, where he had expected to find it, and copied the greater part of what he wanted. In fact, he stayed until the light began to fail him. I must have been wrong, he writes, in saying that one of the padlocks of my Count's sarcophagus was unfastened. I see tonight that two are loose. I picked both up and laid them carefully on the window ledge, after trying unsuccessfully to close them. The remaining one is still firm, and though I take it to be a spring lock, I cannot guess how it is opened. Had I succeeded in undoing it, I am almost afraid I should have taken the liberty of opening the sarcophagus.
It is strange, the interest I feel in the personality of this, I fear. Somewhat ferocious and grim old noble. The day following was, as it turned out, the last of Mr. Raxel's stay at Roebuck. He received letters connected with certain investments, which made it desirable that he should return to England. His work among the papers was practically done, and traveling was slow. He decided, therefore, to make his farewells, put some finishing touches to his notes, and be off. These finishing touches and farewells, as it turned out, took more time than he had expected. The hospitable family insisted on his staying to dine with them. They dined at three, and it was verging on half-past six before he was outside the iron gates of Roebuck. He dwelt on every step of his walk by the lake, determined to saturate himself now that he trod it for the last time in the sentiment of the place and hour. And when he reached the summit of the churchyard knoll, he lingered for many minutes, gazing at the limitless prospect of woods near and distant, all dark beneath a sky of liquid green. When at last he turned to go, the thought struck him that surely he must bid farewell to Count Magnus as well as the rest of the De La Gardies. The church was but twenty yards away, and he knew where the key of the mausoleum hung. It was not long before he was standing of the great copper coffin, and, as usual, talking to himself aloud. You may have been a bit of a rascal in your time, Magnus, he was saying, but for all that, I should like to see you, or rather, just at that instant, he says, I felt a blow on my foot. Hastily enough, I drew it back, and something fell on the pavement with a clash. It was the third, the last of the three padlocks which had fastened the sarcophagus. I stooped to pick it up, and heaven is my witness that I am writing only the bare truth. Before I raised myself, there was a sound of metal hinges creaking, and I distinctly saw the lid shifting upwards. I may have behaved like a coward, but I could not for my life stay for one moment. I was outside that dreadful building in less time than I can write. Almost as quickly as I could have said the words, and what frightens me yet more, I could not turn the key in the lock. As I sit here in my room, noting these facts, I ask myself, it was not twenty minutes ago, whether that noise of creaking metal continued, and I cannot tell whether it did or not. I only know that there was something more than I have written that alarmed me. But whether it was a sound or sight, I am not able to remember. What is this that I have done? Poor Mr. Raxel. He set out on his journey to England on the next day, as he had planned, and he reached England in safety. And yet, as I gather from his changed hand and inconsequent jottings, 
a broken man. One of several small notebooks that have come to me with his papers gives, not a key to, but a kind of inkling of his experiences. Much of his journey was made by canal boat, and I find not less than six painful attempts to enumerate and describe his fellow passengers. The entries are of this kind. 24. Pastor of village in Skane. Usual black coat and soft black hat. 25. Commercial traveler from Stockholm going to Trollhattan. Black cloak, brown hat. 26. Man in a long black cloak. Broad-leafed hat, very old-fashioned. This entry is lined out, and a note added. Perhaps identical with number 13, have not yet seen his face. On referring to number 13, I find that he is a Roman priest in a cassock. The net result of the reckoning is always the same. 28 people appear in enumeration, one being always a man in a long black cloak and a broad hat, and the other a short figure in a dark cloak and hood. On the other hand, it is always noted that only 26 passengers appear at meals, and that the man in the cloak is perhaps absent, and the short figure is certainly absent. On reaching England, it appears that Mr. Raxel landed at Harwich, and that he resolved at once to put himself out of the reach of some person or persons whom he never specifies, but whom he had evidently come to regard as his pursuers. Accordingly, he took a vehicle, it was a closed fly not trusting the railway, and drove across the country to the village of Belchamp St. Paul. It was about nine o'clock on a moonlit August night when he neared the place. He was sitting forward and looking out the window at the fields and thickets. There was little else to be seen racing past him. Suddenly, he came to a crossroad. At the corner, two figures were standing motionless. Both were in dark cloaks. The taller one wore a hat, the shorter a hood. He had no time to see their faces, nor did they make any motion that he could discern. Yet the horse shied violently and broke into a gallop, and Mr. Raxel sank back into his seat in something like desperation. He had seen them before. Arrived at Belchamp St. Paul, he was fortunate enough to find a decent furnished lodging, and for the next 24 hours, he lived, comparatively speaking, in peace. His last notes were written on this day. They are too disjointed and ejaculatory to be given here in full, but the substance of them is clear enough. He is expecting a visit from his pursuers. How or when, he knows not. And his constant cry is, What has he done? And is there no hope? 
Doctors, he knows, would call him mad. Policemen would laugh at him. The parson is away. What can he do but lock his door and cry to God? People still remembered last year at Belchamp St. Paul. How a strange gentleman came one evening in August, years back. And how the next morning, but one, he was found dead. And there was an inquest, and the jury that viewed the body fainted. Seven of them did, and none of them would speak to what they saw, and the verdict was visitation of God, and how the people as kept the house moved out that same week, and went away from that part. But they do not, I think, know that any glimmer of light has ever been thrown, or could be thrown, on the mystery. It so happened that last year, the little house came into my hands as part of a legacy. It had stood empty since 1863, and there seemed no prospect of letting it, so I had it pulled down, and the papers of which I have given you an abstract were found in a forgotten cupboard under the window in the best bedroom. Thanks for listening, and thank you so much to my author this week, M.R. James, wherever you may be. M.R. James had a really cool, like, full name, by the way. It was Montague Rhodes James. Like, that's the most English name I've ever heard. (laughs) I love it. Um, By the way, I don't know a ton about M.R. James, so if he was controversial, this is not me giving him the full thumbs up. You never know with these old dead guys. You just never know. Um, So you can follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and um, Facebook at Scare You to Sleep. You can send in your stories to be considered to the show at, or Scare You to Sleep at gmail.com. And if it's a true story, please put true story in the subject line so I don't get them confused. And I promised I'd tell you what I, why I personally like Count Magnus more than a whistle and I'll come to you, my lad. Well, the thing is, it's just, I'm not going to compare the two apples and oranges. They're very different stories, but Count Magnus really grabs me because it, it makes me think of House of Leaves and I love stories like that. I love the idea that it's like some guy found some papers and he even makes references to publications that I actually have not checked, but I don't know if they actually exist or not. Like he was just like, he talked about how um, the uh, Mr. Raxel was published in these other books and things. And that's very House of Leaves-esque where I don't, if you haven't read it, it's basically a guy finds, <laughs> finds, this trunk of papers where this other guy has written about this thing that happened as if it was completely true 
and has all these references and citations to these works like movies and books and articles that don't exist, but they're they're cite, cited so, I, I guess not accurately because they don't exist, but it almost feels like something from a different dimension, like they should exist. And that's what this book or the story felt like to me, like he was making citations to actual books and he was referencing, you know, actual old um, types of travel books and things. I also love little slices from old literature that really gives us an idea of um, life at the time. Like he was making reference to, you know, this tragedy that happened in the 70s. And the fact that they used to refer to like the 40s and 50s back then, even though, you know, it was the 1800s, we don't think of them having done that. And, you know, oh, these types of books were popular in the 40s. And he was talking about the 1840s. And I just really love Things that are contemporary in their time. I think there's a there's a term for that, but I can't think of what it is at this moment. But I also love the monster. I love well, there are two monsters. There's Count Magnus, who is clearly some sort of immortal. By the t- by the way, before I read this one, I had uh, looked I had looked at like um, synopses of different um, stories. I do that a lot whenever I'm going to read old stories and um this one i thought i knew what the twist was i thought it was going to be oh it's like a vampire story count magnus is like a vampire and like (laughs) i mean look love vampires nothing against vampires okay but i thought that's kind of what it was going to be and i'm so glad i went ahead and read it anyway because that's not what it is count magnus brought something back that has tentacles and is small and wears a cloak um almost in an HP Lovecraft-esque way of like, it doesn't really get described, plus the tentacles. It doesn't really get described because we never see what it is. And it is like, what could this be? Like, I I don't know if I've ever heard any other stories or mythologies about like the Antichrist being associated with like a creature with tentacles, but it is also bipedal, I assume, because it walks around. And... that's just so fascinating to me and then going to this town where the antichrist was supposed to be and i don't know the lore is just so fascinating and there's alchemy kind of involved at some point and i love the narrator being like and there's other there were other papers but don't those were so bonkers i'm not even going to retell those to you and it feels more like it feels like um epistolary almost like it feels like the the writer is writing us a letter about this crazy shit he found that's what it feels like it doesn't feel like he's telling us a story it's more like my hand is cramping i can't put down everything this letter is already so long oh my god the postage this is going to be so expensive but i have to tell you this story and i have to tell you this crazy stuff and at the end you know also by the way (laughs) i had that i had that building torn down um which is so brilliant from a writer's point of view because if you're doing some sort of found footage I mean, this is like an old time, I mean, not really an ARG, but like, he clearly, you know, was making references to places, then he said, I changed the name, so as not to, you know, attract bad attention, and he actually came back here to England, and he stayed at this place, and they found his body, oh, but I'm the one who owned the building, and no one wanted to stay here because of what happened, and I've already had the building torn down, so I promise it really existed, but you can't you can't actually go see if it really existed you know um 
I love it. I, you know, the last story I read, the last old dusty story I read on the show around Christmas time was uh, one that did a similar thing. It was very popular at the time to do kind of a found footage thing. I mean, that's what Dracula is, is found footage, essentially. I mean, footage isn't the right term, but, you know, found media. And it, I love the, the one from, you know, around the holidays that I read about the water ghost. And at the end, he's like, yeah, and that water ghost somewhere in a, in a warehouse still in London. And if you look hard enough, you can probably find her frozen in London somewhere. I just love that that was such a thing at the time. Found footage is my favorite genre of horror movie. And that's very controversial. I know. I've been told by many people that it's not everybody's favorite, but it is mine. And I love it in literature, too. And I don't think... A lot of people realize how much of it is in older literature. They loved, especially in the horror genre, they loved to write as if this was based on true events. The whole based on true events thing has been around forever. It's it was the Victorians were all about it, all about like telling these stories as if it happened to a friend of a friend of a friend. And I love it. I just I love immersion. You know that if you listen to the show, I love being immersed. All right, enough of me going on and on about how much I love found footage and old horror stories. I hope I've had a few of you reach out to me and tell me that you don't really have a taste for older stories, which fair, the language is very different. Um, They're a little, a lot, a lot of times are more of a slow burn. This one definitely was a slow burn. Things were just written differently in the old days. But that you found a new, you found an appreciation for it because listening to it, it's easier to get through because these are a little tough to get through if you're reading. I can understand that if you're not into it like I am, I can, I can completely see that. So I, it makes, it brings me so much joy to hear that some of you, you know, who weren't into old dusty stories, like I called them you found an appreciation for them by listening to them on the show. And again, they're just fun to have in your repertoire, like to pull out at a party and be like, oh yes, I've read the works of M.R. James. I'm very familiar with his works. In fact, I preferred Count Magnus over a whistle come to me, my lad, because blah, 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 blah. And then you can just repeat what I just said. So feel free to steal any of that to sound cool at parties. Um, as if, as if I sound cool at parties. <laughs> that was a really bold statement for, for me to make. Good one. Um, I've never sounded cool at a party in my life, ever. I've, in fact, I've, I've, I've been very much the opposite at most parties I've been to. But, uh, <laughs> all right, I am going to go. Uh, by the way, remember, there is a Patreon if you would like an ad-free version of the show. There is also uh, bonus episodes on the $3 and up tier. It's only $1 a month if you just like the bonus or the, sorry, the um, ad free episodes. And I do that just because I want you to have it for as little as possible, but I also need to pay the bills. So I got to have this version with the ads. And speaking of, if you hear an ad read by me, usually the ones that are, um, well, I've been reading a lot of the bloody disgusting ads that come before uh, you've probably heard the convention one for a while and there's a, a, there's a few coming out but the ones that are read by me for the show not for all the bloody FM shows um, but for the show that usually is a mid-roll ad if it has a code an offer code that's like and use scary you know offer code scary to sleep for 50% off or whatever 
Um, don't feel like you need to go purchase those products, but if you do are interested in any of those products or um, even some of them you don't have to pay for, they're just, you know, apps or whatever, um, please use my offer code if you, if, if those things are of interest to you. I don't, I'm not telling you to go purchase anything that you would not already be purchasing. Please don't do that. Um, but it really does help my, it helps me a lot if you use my offer code. So if you're like, oh, you know what? I've been wanting to check out uh, um, oh yeah, I heard about it on that show. I'm going to use her offer code. That, that would be great. That would be great. Uh, just throwing that out there. It really helps like a lot, a lot. Um, okay. Oh yeah. Um, yes. Patreon. Yeah. Go check it out. (laughs) Um, oh, for those of you who keep up with my baking, I baked a Texas sheet cake this week which is excellent. If you're craving a chocolate cake, it kind of makes a lot. So, um, you might want to cut the recipe in half, but God, it's so quick and it's so good. It's my, it's probably my favorite cake. Like one of my favorite cakes. I got, I, it's, it's one of my favorites to, it's definitely my favorite to make too. It's such an excellent cake. It's easy. It takes like 30 minutes. I'm not kidding. And you ice it while it's hot. So like, you don't even have to wait for it to cool down to put the icing on it and then to eat it is perfect. What more, what more do you want out of a cake? Plus it's got, I love a chocolate cake that uses buttermilk. Ugh, love it. Gives it that, that tang. Love it. Oh, so good. So, uh, I made a Texas sheet cake this week. Cool. I'm going to not be in town this weekend. So next, well, we'll see. I, I have to still have all of next week. We'll see if I bake something next week stay tuned oh i did see a few of you made that yogurt cake and made your own versions and that is excellent i'm so glad um and it looked like i from what i saw you all liked it and like not to be like i was right but i was right right it's so good it's such a great base cake you can put whatever you want in it or just do the base recipe with vanilla and it's just an excellent easy cake okay time to go Thank you for listening to me ramble about old literature and baking. Remember to drink your water. Go get some sleep. Sweet dreams. Item number SCP-5186 SCP-7160 SCP-7533 Object Class Euclid Keter Safe Special Containment Procedures Spreading across the hemisphere and kicking up vast amounts of ash and dust 
The only thing I could hear was 7219 <laughs> laughing. Do you remember your name? Heartland Counseling. Appointment update. I feel them again. Heartland Counseling. Appointment update. They're in my ears! Heartland Counseling. Appointment update. Nobody understands! SCP Archives is a weekly fiction podcast. Each episode, we dive into the strange, the unknown, and the... Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at scparchives.com.